0: Good morning. This is Ariel Davidov from Zurich, Switzerland, and we have today a guest of honor, Mr. Alex Evans, who is also on the screen. Wholehearted welcome, dear Alex. Uh, You're here at the FS Club, and we have another interesting uh, question-and-answer uh, discussion and also presentation by Alex on the on the question of larger than us now first of all as usually i have to thank our glorious sponsors which you have just seen uh, allowing us that we can do so many things in the area of technology economics uh, finance so a uh, wholehearted thank you to all the sponsors um, we went already through the title slide i see so i don't know we are so fast today <laughs> that i think i can pass uh, the word to you, the floor to you, dear Alex, if you are ready, please commence with your presentation. We are all looking forward
1: to it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Ariel. So good morning, everyone. My name is Alex Evans. I'm the founder of an organization from Larger Us, uh, called Larger Us, which I'll tell you about in the presentation. Just to give you a quick snapshot of my background, it's really in policy and politics, most of all. I was a special advisor to two cabinet ministers in the last Labour government in the UK. I worked uh, in the climate change team in the UN Secretary General's office. I worked for lots of different think tanks like the Brookings Institution and Chatham House. But what I'm gonna talk about today is Larger Us. The story of Larger Us really begins back in, this is in 2017 in the UK, when I was working as campaign director at an organization called Avaz, big campaigning NGO. And I was running a campaign about Brexit, specifically a very remain leaning campaign to try and win the argument that Britain should remain in the European Union through a second referendum. The thing was, next slide please, Sasha, that I was increasingly uncomfortable about the polarisation that I could see on Brexit, this kind of toxic wound that had opened up in our politics, and also increasingly uncomfortable about the sense that my work certainly wasn't doing anything to heal that wound, and perhaps was even contributing to it which gave me misgivings, particularly because I could see that this polarisation wasn't just a British phenomenon. It was opening up spectacularly in the United States, where Donald Trump had just been elected, and in many countries uh, around the world as well. Next slide, please, Sasha. Now, the thing was that as someone who would worked on global risks for a couple of decades, I knew that the kind of them and us dynamics that polarisation creates, was something that we could ill afford at this point, when we're faced with so many so-called wicked issues, issues that are extremely complex, but also very much to do with our interdependence and require collective action, not just at the level of policymakers, but also across society. Next slide, please, Sasha. This was something that I'd first written about back in 2010 when I co-authored a report for Brookings called Confronting the Long Crisis of Globalization, and this was in the wake of the financial crisis. And the metaphor right at the heart of that report was that navigating this period of pronounced crisis and upheaval was a bit like shooting a stretch of rapids on a river. If you think about shooting rapids, it's of course the river, not you, that decides the speed and the direction of travel. There's no opportunity to stop for a rethink or to change direction. There's a very real risk of hitting rocks and of everyone in the boat being tipped out into the torrent. And above all, if you want to shoot rapids successfully, it's essential that everyone paddles together. Next slide, please. So the thing about the polarization that I was seeing with Brexit and perhaps contributing to is it made me realize how many different actors have both motive and opportunity to fan the flames of these them and us dynamics. When you look at, for example, tech companies like Cambridge Analytica, how it used psychological profiling and social media micro-targeting to get people to see the world in them and us terms during election times. Or Facebook, whose content algorithms deliberately push at us the kind of things that we find scary or outraging because it's a very effective way of monetizing our attention. The same is true of the media, who will often lead with sensationalizing or divisive angles, because it keeps us glued to our TVs. And of course, populist politicians like Nigel Farage, or like Donald Trump, excel at this playbook as well. Next slide, please. Now, all of this uh, made me wonder, well, if those are the actors who are pushing for them and us outcomes, because they profit from them in different ways, who are the actors pushing for, if you like, larger us outcomes, where we come together rather than divide, where we bridge divides rather than deepen them? And that's really the question that's at the heart of our work at Larger Us. Can I have the next slide, please? In particular, we're interested in trying to help uh, rally and support a different kind of change maker, because as I realized when I was campaigning on Brexit, A lot of the time the sort of change-making tactics that we use as campaigners or as politicians or other people who are trying to change the world in different ways are often divisive. So I was interested in what if we had a different kind of change-maker who excels at bringing people together rather than dividing them? And in our work at Larger Us, there are five questions right at the heart of it that we explore in the Larger Us program that we run. And these are how we can create the logging how we can bridge divides, how we can appeal to love, not fear, particularly where we feel threatened, how we can help people to navigate crises, and how we can tell stories that bring people together. And as you'll see, all of these are as much psychological as they're political. And this is very much the space that we're always seeking to work in, where our states of mind and the state of the world intersect. Can I have the next slide, please? So first one, how we can create belonging. Next slide again, please. You're probably familiar with the idea that we're living through a so-called epidemic of loneliness. And in particular, that that got much worse for many people during COVID-19. And of course, this has terrible mental health impacts and it also has physical health impacts. Researchers on loneliness sometimes say that it has the same effect on life expectancy if you're chronically lonely as if you smoke 15 cigarettes a day. Next slide, please. But what we're particularly interested in is less the personal and more the political impacts of this kind of chronic loneliness that there's so much of in our society. One reason is because it affects how we show up as citizens. There's good evidence to show that when we feel lonely, we actually become more self-centered and less empathetic towards other people, which is a big deal if you're trying to bridge divides. Next slide again, please. But in particular, where loneliness becomes important is where it's such a key factor in understanding extremism. If you look, for example, at so-called incels, these are men who are extremely angry because they're not in relationships and they feel uh, deep shame as a result. That sense of loneliness can kind of pull people into extremism. Same when you see a mass shooter event in the United States, it's almost invariably a lonely man who's the perpetrator. Next slide, please. Similarly, if you look at far right groups like the Proud Boys in the United States, like Pegida in Germany, or like the English Defence League here in the UK, or indeed Islamist groups like, here's Hizbut Tahrir in the picture, These are all networks and groups that really excel at preying on people's loneliness and the need to feel like you belong. And they do so by creating a kind of belonging that is exclusive. It's belonging based on who else is excluded. Next one again, please. And in particular, loneliness is really important if we want to understand authoritarianism. This is something that the great writer Hannah Arendt understood years ago when she wrote that. Terror can rule absolutely only over men who are isolated against each other. Therefore, one of the primary concerns of all tyrannical government is to bring this isolation about. Isolated men are powerless by definition. Next slide, please, Sasha. So we begin to see that creating a sense of belonging is tremendously important, not just for our personal well being and health, but also for the well being of our communities and societies next slide please and this was something that we saw particularly in the early days of covid 19 where when there were communities with high levels of belonging they were able to provide mutual aid and really increase resilience during this extremely testing time next slide again please so that's how we can create belonging and why it's so important to creating a larger us rather than the them and us The second question we work on a lot is how we can bridge divides. Next slide, please. Now, one of the things we think about a lot here is the um, cognitive bias known as in-group bias. This is the bias that all of us have, whereby when we see ourselves as part of a group, we tend to regard that group more favorably and to give it preferential treatment. And oftentimes that's innocuous. I mean, I feel a sense of in-group bias towards my family or the people that I studied with at college. And that doesn't exclude anyone else. It's not inherently problematic. Next slide, please. Another example of a a bias that, uh, or sorry, of a trend that affects the the extent to which we're in these little kind of um, bubbles of the like-minded is what sociologists call the big sort. You've probably heard the idea that um, social media puts us into echo chambers of the like-minded but in fact that's part of a much larger trend that also extends out to real life and this is about the fact that in recent decades we've become much more likely to study with and befriend and work with and date and even marry people with very similar backgrounds and outlooks to our own next slide please And that means that when we do meet the other people with really different backgrounds and different outlooks to our own, it can come as quite a shock. And at that point, our in-group bias comes rushing back and we can become very vulnerable to othering, not just to seeing those people as different from us, but seeing them as fundamentally different and somehow threatening. Next slide, please. So one of the things we talk about a lot in our training programmes is what's called courageous conversations, referred to here by the philosopher David White. And these are conversations, not just with people that are different from us, but about the subjects that are a little bit uncomfortable. They're conversations which involve deep listening, probably some vulnerability or emotional disclosure on our part, but above all, a willingness to enter that conversation, entertaining the possibility that we may be wrong in some ways, or looking for the possibility of real encounter, even with people whose views we may find abhorrent. Next slide, please. Now, a great example of this is this man, who's called Daryl Davis. Daryl is a blues musician in the United States, but he also, in his spare time, attends Ku Klux Klan rallies, which is pretty extraordinary, given that, as you can see, Daryl's an African-American. Now, Daryl has a fascinating story, which I don't have time to tell now, but the point is that what he does is befriend white supremacists. And he doesn't call them out. He doesn't tell them why they're wrong. He just wins their trust through conversations and open-ended questions and gives them space over time to re-examine their own biases. And to date, Daryl has persuaded 200 people to leave white supremacist groups, many of whom give him their robes when they leave the KKK. So that's an extreme example of courageous conversations, but it's also a discipline that in a smaller way we can use in our own lives to bridge the differences that we often see around us. Next slide, please. Okay, third big question at the heart of our work is all about how we can appeal to love, not fear, particularly when we feel threatened. Next slide. Now, you're probably familiar with the so-called fight-or-flight response, or more accurately, the fight-flight-freeze response. This is when we feel under threat and all sorts of things happen in our body, when our amygdala, a little almond-shaped part of our brain, right at the bottom of our brain, fires up this autonomic nervous response. We're getting ready to literally fight or flee for our lives. Next slide, please. Now, when we're faced with physical danger, It's an extremely effective response. Fight, flight, freeze is something that's kept us alive as a species all the way up to date. And in our individual lives, it keeps us safe all the time as well. It's there whenever we need it to get us ready again to fight or flee for our lives. Next slide, please. The problem is that fight, flight, freeze can also be fired up by things that aren't physical danger, the thing it was designed for, but are more social or political issues. So when we watch the news, when we're on social media, encountering people who infuriate us with their views, those sort of things, again, can fire up that fight, flight, freeze threat response. Next slide, please. Now, the problem is that fight, flight, freeze doesn't just create physical effects of getting us ready to fight or flee. It also creates all kinds of emotional effects, which have really important impact for politics. We start to feel overwhelmed very easily when we're in fight-flight-freeze. We become less empathetic and more assertive or even aggressive. We're focused not on the common good, not on the collective interest, but much more on our individual self-interest. Relatedly, we really lock into those in-groups that I was talking about earlier. And we become much less good at critical thinking, at distinguishing, for instance, between what's real and what's hypothetical Or illusory. Next slide, please. And at worst, what this can do is create a dynamic that's called mutual radicalization. So, this is where, for example, if I and my in group feel threatened by something, we may start to act out in ways that make the other side threatened. Maybe we show contempt towards them, maybe we start acting aggressively. And then as they feel threatened, they begin to act out in ways that amplify the sense of threat that my side feels. And so you can see how you can get a positive feedback loop where each side is in effect kind of egging the other one on. Next slide, please. And this is something that I saw vividly when I was living in Jerusalem, just after I was working on Brexit. And I hadn't been there for a good 15 years, and it was terrifying to see how much worse polarization had become between Israelis and Palestinians, how each side felt so threatened by the other side, and how that was ramping up extremism on each side of the divide. Next slide again, please. So what's the alternative? Well. In our personal lives, it can be about what Viktor Frankl, the great concentration camp survivor and psychotherapist, wrote about here where he said that between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And this has a kind of neurological concomitant that if the amygdala, the part of our brain I mentioned earlier, that takes us into fight, flight, freeze, that's an automatic response But with practice, what we can do is create the presence of mind, the self-awareness so that instead of responding automatically from the amygdala, we respond mindfully from the prefrontal cortex, the more reflective part of our brains at the front of our heads. And that takes, as I say, practice. It takes real effort. But we can, like Viktor Frankl says, choose how to respond to things that we can find threatening. Next slide, please. And at collective level, we talk a lot in our work about tend and befriend. It's an alternative threat response to fight, flight, freeze. And it's what happens where we tend our friends and family, our immediate social group, and befriend others to create social networks to help us do that. It's much more pro-social than fight, flight, freeze. And it's what we often see in the wake of major natural disasters, where you have tremendous kind of coming together and solidarity and even heroism. Next slide again, please, Sasha. Next question that we look at is how we can help people to navigate crises. The next slide again, please. Now, I always find this graph fascinating. This was produced by the Department of Homeland Security in the United States. And it's a kind of stylized depiction of the emotional stages that we go through in the wake of a big shock or disaster. And you can see that early on after disaster, there's often a kind of a honeymoon period where as i was just describing with tend and befriend you get very high levels of community cohesion and people can even feel a sense of exhilaration isn't it great how we're all coming together and if you think about covid over the last year and a half two years this was very much what the early stages of the pandemic were like with people really coming together but as you can see on this graph what typically sorry go back to the previous one please sasha What often happens after that honeymoon stage is that it gives way to a long period of disillusionment. This is where things like health or money or relationship worries crowd in. We start to feel exhausted, fatigued. We're realizing how much won't go back to normal. And while this can typically give way in the end to a kind of reconstruction phase where we recover a sense of agency, maybe a kind of narrative about why disaster has happened or how we've kind of changed and evolved in response to it that can take a year or more to reach and i think many of us have been living in that disillusionment stage during covid over the last year and a half next slide please now where it gets really tricky for us now is that of course we're not just facing one crisis we're facing all sorts of different crises whether it's covid or climate breakdown or all the conflicts that we see around us in the world and it creates that sense of overwhelm that i talked about earlier it's just one crisis after another next slide please now where this becomes really important for politics is that it's very easy for destructive leaders to manipulate that sense of crisis and particularly when that sense of crisis involves a sense of loss of status or prestige. There's a great psychologist whose work we look at a lot called Vanik Volkan, who talks about how shared experiences of loss of status or prestige can very easily become a cornerstone of group identity for communities or whole societies, leaving them very vulnerable to manipulation by destructive leaders who play on that. Next slide, please. And this is, of course, exactly what we saw in the United States with the January 6 attacks last year, where, if fascinatingly, one of the things that was the strongest predictor of whether someone would take part in the attacks on the Capitol was that they lived in an area where the white share of the population in their neighborhood was declining, which made, underlines, I think, a really crucial point that that sense of loss of status doesn't have to be something that the rest of us see as legitimate. It just has to be the lived experience of those people and then if they start acting out from that sense of loss it becomes everyone else's problem just as we saw with the capital attacks next slide please and i think this is also a really important factor when we look at the kind of support that vladimir putin is enjoying within russia right now even as the rest of the world is horrified by seeing what's happening in the Ukraine, how that sense of loss of prestige, loss of status internationally creates a kind of group of disaffected people that Putin is then able to play on and use as a political base. Next slide again, please. Okay, last question is how can we tell the kind of stories that bring people together? Next slide, please. One of my favourite writers is the American um, philosopher and behavioural economics uh, economist, sorry, Jonathan Haidt, who wrote that the human mind is a story processor, not a logic processor. As much as we like to see ourselves as these kind of rational, empirical actors, in fact, much more than we may realise, we're motivated and um, you know are shaped by the stories that we use and that we tell each other to understand the world and our place in it. The next slide, please. In a lot of ways, stories are a bit like a compass that gives us magnetic north. They tell us what's important. They tell us where we are and where we're trying to get to. At the bottom of it all, they tell us about who we are, not just as individuals, but as communities and whole societies. Next slide, please. Now, what gets really interesting about stories is moments where the so-called master narrative that societies use breaks down i'm talking about moments like the fall of the berlin wall 9 11 the financial crisis or now the conflict in ukraine where suddenly you know it's those moments where you feel like i don't know what's happening it's just everything is up in the air you're not sure what you can safely assume you're not sure where we're going um, and it's sort of a moment where All sorts of different stories can suddenly take hold in that moment. Next slide again, please. And at a deeper level, there's the fact that the the kind of shared stories like religious stories that used to bind us together as societies have become less and less relevant in our kind of modern lives Mm -hmm. as we, for instance, become less religiously observant. It's something that I wrote about in a book called The Myth Gap, which came out in 2016, which was looking at what happens in conditions where we used to have these big shared stories, but then they gradually recede from view. Next slide, please. Now here again, it's another one of these examples of something that can be a tremendous opportunity for destructive leaders to play on. Look at what a gifted storyteller Donald Trump was with stories about how we, in inverted commas, are threatened by some kind of other that threatens to overwhelm us and how we need to build bigger walls to keep them out. Next slide, please. And one of the things that fascinates me most about these kind of collective stories is how easily they can become self-fulfilling prophecies. One of my favorite examples about this is what happens when you have a run on a bank, because of course that begins just as a story. The story begins to circulate that a bank doesn't have enough money to meet its depositors' demands. But then what happens is that if enough people believe that story and then start to act accordingly, in other words, they queue up outside the bank, then a story suddenly becomes reality because people behaved as if the story was true. Next slide, please. It's something that the great writer Terry Pratchett understood very well when he wrote that people think that stories are shaped by people. In fact, it's the other way around. Next slide please. So one other thing we think about in our work at Larger Us is what kind of stories we do need at this point. What kind of stories can bring us together rather than dividing us and three themes that we talk about a lot are stories that help us to think in terms of a larger us which obviously I've been talking about already. What are the kind of stories that can prompt me to see myself not as part of a them and us but as part of a larger us that includes welcomes in and ultimately Uh, that includes all eight billion of us, plus other species, plus future generations of both. Second, we need stories that can help us to situate ourselves in a longer now, where now is measured not in seconds or days, but rather in centuries or even uh, in millennia, where we're thinking much more for the long term. And finally, I think the kind of stories we need now are stories that nudge us to think in terms of a different good life, where we're valuing different things. So rather than, for instance, zoning out on economic growth, we're looking at the growth of our maturity as a species and our ability to kind of steward the world in an intelligent way. Next slide, please. So that is it for the presentation. What I've covered here is just some of the ideas at the heart of our work. I haven't really had time to talk about uh, what we do to try and put those ideas into practice, but I'd be very happy to do that um, in discussion now. But for now, thanks so much again for the invitation to join you. Thank you so much, dear Alex. I thought that was a fascinating
0: run through our minds and our stances. I have a number of questions. I don't know whether you see them already, but uh, before I I start reading them out to you, um, maybe a a question from me, because when I listened to you, um, a lot reminded me of a course I once had that it depends um, not on the others, how your reaction is, but that that we have to change as individuals our stance towards the other in order to actually influence the outcome. So, uh, for example, if if somebody insults me, I can do exactly as you say. I can uh, become emotionally engaged and, and counter insult, or I can, like in judo, step uh, step back and let this pass, or or, or say uh, I probably misunderstood you. How how I mean, these are things which I find what you what you told us today. You find in so many layers uh, between two people, between nations. You know, you you find it mirrored everywhere. What
1: do you think? Uh, Can you see that as well? Yeah, well, it's a great question. and I completely agree with where you're coming from. I mean, in in fact, it's very much the question that I started with when I began Larger Us, because I mentioned Cambridge Analytica in the slides. And, you know, I I had a lot to do with them. You know, I felt like we were on the other side of that argument when I was at VARS and they were working on Brexit from the other side. But what they sought to do was in effect to kind of weaponize our own anxieties against us. Um, And there's lots of debate about how successful they were. But it left me with the question, if that were successful as an approach, how would you inoculate a society against that kind of deliberate trolling and that use of psychology and social media to, as I say, weaponize our own anxieties against us? And I think you're absolutely right that it's a multi-level proposition. One of the things that we talk about on our program that we run is how doing this work involves work on ourselves and work with each other at the kind of relational level of the ability to have, for example, the courageous conversations I was talking about and then work together at a larger scale to get to grips with these kind of enormous political issues confronting us at this point in the 21st century. And there is this kind of golden thread running through it that all of those three levels have you know, psychological aspects. They are as much about states of mind as the state of the world. And yet, you know, in my old worlds of campaigning or in politics, we don't really think that much about psychology. We don't think about what emotional state are we taking people into and does that emotional state make them better or worse citizens?
0: Very interesting. Thank you so much. Uh, So that our audience also gets uh, something from you. I'm going to read out. The first question uh, or comment from Mr Graham Elliot does a tendency towards defining oneself as only one thing, for example, being English rather than as many things that make up each person cause people to create tribal separations. Um he goes further. Our inherent complexity and breadth of self-identities can be emphasized to reduce the tendency to adopt the us and them
1: as life strategy. Oh, that's a terrific question. Thanks, Graham. I think I think you're right that one just identifying with one aspect of ourselves is inevitably going to kind of amplify that in-group bias um, and exclude everyone who's not included in that. And I think that. You know, it's possible, of course, to have like nested identities. I mean, I see myself as part of my family, of course, I see myself as a a resident of the little village that I live in, in Yorkshire, but I also see myself as English, British, as European, and ultimately, uh, you know, as a citizen of the world or as a human. And I think one of the things that... Is often problematic in politics at the moment is we think it's an either or that either we're into diversity or we're into kind of you know unity and that unity means homogeneity and we end up having these kind of culture wars which I think are based on a misunderstanding that actually we need to find a, our way to seeing what we have in common with each other and understanding that that doesn't mean it doesn't negate our wonderful diversity. Um, on the contrary, you know, I always think of the uh, Example of a tropical rainforest, which is fundamentally a very sophisticated unified entity, but it's characterized by very, very high diversity, and that's something that sort of eludes us as a metaphor in the culture wars we keep having. We tend to think it's one or the other, and um, and I think you know, of course, we do need to see ourselves uh, as kind of multifaceted beings, and ultimately as humans. Thank you very much. I have a
0: further Mm -hmm. question by Peter Cousins. He says, when I was young, there was a recognition that rational people could have different views. This seems to have disappeared. We also thought that arguments should be based on reason, whereas now it is okay to base arguments on emotions and feelings. Do you agree? And if so,
1: how did this change come about? Yeah, another great question. Thank you, Peter. I mean, I think that my hunch is that we've always been a bit less rational than we thought. I mean, I look at the data, for example, on how people vote at election time and, you know, people tend to think that they are rational. But actually, when you dig down into it, the data are very clear that much more than we like to think. We're actually influenced by what our friends and family and social networks think, Um, you know, values are, are as contagious as anything else. And of course, we are swayed by emotion, as you say, I think the sweet spot is that, you know, we need to understand the both. And I mean, one of the issues I've spent most time working on is climate change. And I remember kind of, you know, if you think back to 2006 or 2008, I remember when it looked like we were close to kind of solving climate change. You just had an American election with two candidates, Barack Obama and John McCain, who both thought climate change was real, urgent, caused by humans. We were sure that there was going to be a big breakthrough at the Copenhagen Climate Summit in 2009. And then, of course, you know, it all fell apart as the Tea Party stormed onto the scene. But I think that, you know, when I think back to climate activists, Uh, and the people who worked to advocate action on climate change I think we often assumed that because we had the science on our side that was the end of the matter you know the IPCC says that we've got to do something about this so obviously we will do something about this and that turned out not to be true and I think the solution to that is not to junk the science to say okay well let's not bother having an IPCC let's just try and tell a better story but it's to recognize we have to do it both hand it's not enough just to have the evidence and the data on our side we also have to package that into a really resonant story that's going to connect with people and I think that actually climate scientists have become so much better at that in the last 10 years and that's one of the reasons why the Paris summit succeeded where the Copenhagen one failed because they just got better at communicating but I think humans are, are, you know, we have the capacity to be rational, but we're never going to be just rational. We are emotive creatures.
0: That's uh, good and bad at the same time, I guess. Uh, <laughs> we have further questions. The next one is by Colin Colson Colin Thomas. Brexit for many people I know was about a larger us beyond the 10% of the world, i.e. opening up to a global Britain and not being self-obsessed European. It's more a comment. Uh, I don't know whether you would like to say anything to this.
1: Well, I guess the the one thing I would say is that, you know, I mean, I, I'm a total Remainer myself. Um, but I think, you know, just thinking back to my time campaigning on Brexit, um, it was very tempting to assume that our side was right and their side, the lever side was wrong. But I think that, you know, what I realised through that uncomfortable process of understanding how I was contributing to polarisation was that both sides were guilty of them and us thinking. And, um, you know, it went to extremes, and that's how we ended up with the situation becoming as acrimonious as it did. So obviously, you know, I value very much a cosmopolitan identity, but I think that just because I have a cosmopolitan worldview doesn't make me immune from them and us thinking, as I discovered to my cost. (laughs) Thank you very much. Again, we are
0: all humans. Christopher Sothander asks uh, or has a comment and a question. I'm not sure. It tells a little bit where he comes from very clear about what you said alex what stories what stories can you tell to activate the power of women to persuade that partnership and caring are more important than domination and control not sure what i would make out of this but (laughs) it's a question
1: what sort of question just repeat the question again ariel what what sort Uh, of question
0: What stories can you tell to activate the power of women to persuade that partnership and caring are more important than domination and control? Mm.
1: Well, I think in some ways, you know, there is a I mentioned those two threat responses of fight, flight, freeze on the one hand, which is, you know, in the fight mode, very much about domination and control and then tend and befriend as an alternative threat response. And I think there is a story that you can tell about that. I mean, they, you know, tend and befriend is a sort of a resonant story. And particularly when I mean, when I do this uh, presentation in slower time, um, you can give lots of great examples of what tend and befriend looks like. And interestingly, the psychologist who first coined that, a woman called Shelley Taylor, um, did have a very strong gender aspect to that. She posited that actually women are often better at tend and befriend responses than men Um, and she suggested that that may be to do with um, oxytocin as a sort of hormonal response. Now I think that uh, it's not impossible at all for men also to feel tend and befriend but I think that's you know I mean we can ascribe kind of gender aspects to that but the bottom line is that I, I very much agree that we do need to kind of move beyond uh, responding to threats in this fight flight freezeway and come at it more through tender friend. and there is a resonant set of stories that we can tell about that.
0: Thank you. We have another two questions. One is by Douglas Andrews, and he says there are many programs around the world to deprogram terrorists, for example, jihadists. Is it possible to apply their methodologies on, ma- on a mass basis to combat political
1: extremism more generally? Very interesting. I mean, in some sense, that's the question that we're wrestling with in our work. I mean, we think it should be possible, um, but we want to figure out what it looks like in practice. I mean, there's a woman uh, called Khadija Masiya, fascinating person. She was the first guest we ever had on our podcast, and she actually used to be a member of book Tahrir, the now-banned Islamist group. But then she came out of it and now runs um, a wonderful network that works on counter-extremism and de-radicalization and the sort of insights that they have from their work are very much ones that we draw on in our work about for example you know the things i was talking about the importance of belonging um, the importance of conversations across lines of difference the importance of helping people you know when they're feeling a sense of loss of status or prestige whether or not we see that as legitimate all these things are really important if we want to kind of bring people into society rather than see them drift into extremism i think the question is really you know this is the one we're most interested in how would you do that on a big scale because hadia's work a lot of it is kind of one-to-one mentoring with kids who are at risk of being drawn into extremism it's very kind of you know resource intensive And, you know, the kind of dream I have that really animates the work that I do is that, you know, I'm aware that a lot of campaigners, people who do the kind of work that I used to do at Avaaz, they will reach for a them and us playbook because it's such an effective way of firing people up. You know, when I worked in politics as well, you always, as a political party, you want to have a clear dividing line, we always say, from your opponent. And the problem with that is, yeah, it fires people up. It's great for generating media interest and so forth. But if it's at the same time increasing division, the risk is you're all the time winning battles and losing the war. And that's why we're just fascinated by this question of, well, what if you had a different kind of change maker? You didn't just fire people up with division and try and bring about change that way, but was able to bring people together and build belonging as they go And train up their supporters to bridge difference through these kind of courageous conversations and so on and so on. So that's why in our work, you know, we really see ourselves as a laboratory that wants to be in service of organizations that are much kind of bigger than us. So we work with kind of NGOs, political parties and so forth to try and uh, put some of these skills out there and encourage them to draw on them because we're too small to put this into kind of, you know, national or international effect. But some of the partners that we work with do have that kind of reach. Thank you so much,
0: dear Alex. We are already end, uh, coming towards the end of this session. Thank, uh, thank you wholeheartedly from my side. I hope also for, uh, from the audience. I found it extremely stimulating what you say and also extremely encouraging that you do what you do. I have one last comment from the audi- audience, John Knights. He says, Great presentation on, on a very important topic. I agree with everything uh, Alex covered. Very linked to his presentation, which we'll have next Monday on FS Club. So uh, I think this is also important that we continue with that. Uh, we would like again to thank the audience for participating and being with us so long. Um, also the sponsors again that they helped us to make this program. We see here the outlook for the next sessions, uh, so that that you know what is coming up and uh, again thank you dear alex it was a pleasure and a privilege to be with you this morning and i look forward yeah to seeing you in the flesh probably once in the uk or here in switzerland and otherwise let's hope that there will be peace soon thanks a lot for everything and continue your good work bye bye everybody thank you